0: All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good, you need to turn to Colossians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll grab one from the pew rack there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's word together this morning. Last week, we wrapped up the introductory prayer section of the letter to the Colossians. It was fun to preach that section about Thanksgiving. Uh, It is not always fun to preach Um, Sometimes we have to say hard things. Sometimes uh, the concepts are difficult to explain. Uh, Last week was neither of those. It was just fun. It was a delight to preach, a joy to preach Um, as we consider all that God has done for us in Christ and we simply respond with thanks to Him for His goodness to us. We're following the pattern of the psalmist in Psalm 107 who reflects on a number of different scenes where God is gracious and good to His people. Psalm 107, 14 and 15 says, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and he broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. That whole psalm goes back and forth between reflecting on what God has done and then giving him thanks. And Psalm 126, verse three says, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And we rejoiced in that gladness last week and simply delighted in it. I want you to reflect once again on what the Lord has done for you. If you are in Christ, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has redeemed you, purchased you out of slavery, and he has forgiven you of your sins. And when we reflect on these things, we rejoice we appreciate it. We savor it. I told you last week, and Dylan kind of reinforced this, about not being in a hurry when we come to places like this. Like, this is not fast food that we want to eat in the car on the way to a meeting. This is a, this is a table that we want to sit at for a while and delight in the goodness of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to give thanks to God for his grace and his goodness to us. In our praying, we want to say thank you to him. In our praising of him, we want, to, we want to sing our thanksgiving to him. And in our proclamation of the gospel to other people, we want to express our gratitude to the Lord. And, and finally, last week, when we wrapped it up, I said, he has done all of this for us, who are his, and he can do this for you. Like If you feel far away from God, like you don't have anything for which to give thanks, He can give you grace and redemption and salvation and transfer and rescue and qualification today by His grace. Uh, So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the greatest gift ever. Well, this week we're going to move into the body of the letter. And as we move into the body of the letter, we dive right into the deep end. Uh, In the text today, we will get a wonderful and glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Kent Hughes says of these verses, he says... Verses 15 to 20 are the most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. And, and that statement by our Kent Hughes should cause you to lean forward a little bit in your seat. Like if a scholar like that is going to say, this is the most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ in all of the Bible, like I want to pay attention to that. I want to see the supremacy of Christ, don't you? John MacArthur says a similar thing. He says the Bible is supremely... A book about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament records the preparation for his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh come into the world to save sinners. In Acts, the message of salvation in Christ begins to be spread throughout all the world. The epistles detail the theology of Christ's work and the personification of Christ in his body, the church. Finally, Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Glory, glory, right? Every part of scripture testifies about Jesus Christ, but MacArthur says, but of all the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians 1, 15 to 19. This dramatic and powerful passage removes any needless doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. It is vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. I'm giving you all of this introduction so that you will you have a posture of expectancy as we look at this over the next few weeks that you will say, man, this is this is a significant, all, all scripture is significant. Like, don't hear me saying anything other than that. But man, there's something special going on in these few verses, specifically when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is, of his supremacy and his sufficiency. You may remember... Uh, Back in the introduction to this series of sermons, I told you that Paul was writing this letter to these people because there's some kind of danger of false doctrine going around in Colossae and in the area. And scholars differ greatly on exactly what the content of that false teaching was. And I told you from the beginning that rather than spend a ton of our time and energy on arguing for one thing or another when it comes to the false teaching... I want us to spend our time focusing on how Paul answers the question. And how Paul answers the question is simply by lifting Jesus high. He lays out a glorious picture of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus that puts down any false doctrine that is liable to spread around. How does does Paul answer the question of false teaching in Colossae? He simply tells the truth about who Jesus is. And that allows people to be standing firm in the face of false doctrine. So we're probably going to spend a couple weeks on this text, uh, verses 15 to 20, just because it's so rich, it's so important to us. So let's read it together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is what God's Word says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, And in your Son, Jesus Christ. And and we want to see Jesus clearly through the Word today. We want to see Him high and lifted up. Firstborn of all creation. Creator of all things. All things been made through Him and for Him. We want to see Jesus clearly, so we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and give us a right response to what you show us today of your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us a right response to trust in Him and submit to Him as Lord of our lives. Give us a right response of worship unto Him, that we would praise Him for who He is. Give us a right response to the truths that you will show us today, by your grace, through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, are any of you reading the Christian Standard Bible? Like, Do any of you have a copy of the CSB on your lap? If you do, you're going to notice something really interesting, that CSB translates and formats this section as if it's Poetry. And that's a pretty interesting thing. Now, it's a bold move when it comes to Bible translation, Bible publishing, because it aligns with one particular school of thought on this text that would basically say that what is happening here in these few verses is a copy of a Christian hymn of the early church, that this is a song that the church would have been singing about Jesus that lifts him up. Now, CSB is the only translation that does that, and I see why they think like this. Because this text is so carefully crafted. It's got a little bit of flow. It's got a little bit of rhythm. It has some parallelism. It has some uh, repetition in it. Now, with that said, I don't think it's necessary to infer that it is a hymn, which the early church would have been familiar with. But what is clear is that Paul is saying some important things in these verses, and he's saying those important things very carefully. He's saying those important things in a way that is catchy, a way that is clever. Most importantly, he's saying these things in a way that is easy to remember. And things that are easy to remember are easy to share. I think this passage, as important as it is about Jesus, is also a passage that would be easy for you to memorize. So I want to lay out a challenge for you. And I know that all of you are going to take it. In fact, maybe just a very few of you are going to take it. But we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this text. And so I'm going to challenge you to memorize these verses over the next couple of weeks. In fact, maybe even next week when I stand up to preach instead of reading it, one of you will be so bold to stand up and simply declare it from memory. Maybe not. <laughs> not even one guy. Bold enough to do such. My, my point is this. If it is a poem, if it is a hymn, it's written this way so that God's people would remember it, so that it would end up deep in their hearts, so that they could share it with other people. This goes right along with what Laura was sharing from that article about singing in church. When we sing good songs, they sing theology well, and it drives it deep into our hearts and allows us to share with other people, and I think that's part of what's going on here in this text. He has crafted this statement about Jesus so well that it would be easy to share with other people an accurate view of who Jesus is. The ESV Study Bible, which is a great resource. If you don't have it, you should get one. The ESV Study Bible follows a number of scholars in breaking this text, verses 15 to 20, into two parts. And we're going to go with that over the next couple weeks. Verses 15 to 17, exalt Jesus as the Lord of creation. 15 to 17, lift Jesus up and show him to be the Lord of creation. And then verses 18 to 20, lift Jesus up and show him to be the Lord of redemption. Right? He's the firstborn of all creation. He is also the head of the church. And we're going to talk about those two things over the next few weeks. So today, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17 closely, and we're going to see Jesus as Lord of creation. So look at verse 15. Paul starts out this great statement about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus by saying that he, which is a reference to Jesus clearly, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the similarity between this passage and the introductory statement in Hebrews is one of the reasons some people argue that Paul wrote Hebrews. I think they're wrong in arguing that, uh, but, I, but I see their argument that they will say there's so much similar in Hebrews chapter 1 to Colossians chapter 1 that it must be the same author. So look at Hebrews chapter 1 with me on the, on the screen. The author of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways... In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I wanted you to see that, to see a lot of the same things being said about Jesus in Colossians 1 as in Hebrews chapter 1. But the author of Hebrews gives us a little more detail about this. He is the image of the invisible God when it says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature in verse 3. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, it means this, that God the Father is spirit and you cannot see him. But God the Son has a body, and you can see him. In fact, maybe the clearest answer to this question of what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Jesus answers himself in John chapter 14. Look at this on the screen, this conversation with Philip, who's kind of always slow to catch on to the big idea. In, in John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says directly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And it's much more than just a photocopy, much more than just a painting, much more than just a sculpture. Mark Maynell says he is far more than a mere picture of God. Jesus actually is God. And that's the first thing I want us to declare today, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? Jesus is God in the flesh. We're going to see about five statements like that today from the text. Jesus is, number one, God in the flesh. And we've got to celebrate that and worship it. Worship him because of it. He is the image of the invisible God. And next it says, the firstborn of all creation the firstborn of all creation. Now, we want to be super careful here and not to make the mistake of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The mistake they make in taking this to mean that Jesus is a created being. The Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is not God, he is a created being. Now, this is an old heresy called Arianism, but make no mistake, it is heresy. It is absolute blasphemy to talk about Jesus as a created being. Even if you try to give him some place of prominence as the first created being, it is blasphemy to say that Jesus is a created being. It is a flat denial of his deity. It is saying that he is not God. And that is not what this text teaches. To say that he is the firstborn of all creation does not mean that he is the first created thing. In order to understand this properly, you've got to understand the concept of firstborn in the context in which it was written. Now if we in our modern era talk about firstborn, we are talking basically exclusively about the first one to come out of the womb. That is not what it means biblically. That's not the way the original audience would have received that idea of firstborn. Rather, it wasn't about birth order at all necessarily. It was about prominence. It was about supremacy. It was about inheritance. It was about rank. When you talk about someone being firstborn, they're the head. They're in charge. They are prominent and supreme. John MacArthur describes it like this. He says, firstborn had a specific connotation in Paul's day it described the rights associated with being the main inheritor of a family's wealth. In the majority of cases, that person was the firstborn son, but there could be exceptions. And I will pause there and say, there are countless exceptions in the Old Testament to this this rule. doesn't matter if you were born first or not, you can be the firstborn and be the thirdborn from the mother. The firstborn though is the one who is in the prominent supreme position. He goes on and says the main point of this word picture is the fact that this individual inherits rather than who his biological father is. So Paul is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the inheritor of all creation by right. So this is a statement that lifts Jesus up and shows him as the one who is supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. In fact, the NIV translation of Of the Bible helps us with this when it translates this verse this way. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now that's that's not an exact translation word for word of what's being said there, but it does get the idea and clears it up for our modern Western minds. He is not the first one created. He is the firstborn over all creation. He holds an office and a rank that is supreme over all created things. Amen? So the point here is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. Jesus reigns supreme over all creation. And verse 16 kind of helps explain what that means. It says, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, it's amazing to me that someone can take that last phrase that we just talked about to argue that Jesus was created when this text teaches that Jesus created everything. It's, it's a logical problem to say Jesus was created and then say Jesus created all things. This verse goes to great lengths to say that there is nothing, nothing that Jesus didn't create. And if he created all things, he himself must not be a created thing. He is the creator of all things, not created himself. John, the best friend of Jesus, says it like this in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You see how redundant that is? Like every time someone talks about Jesus creating everything, they say it over and over and over again so that there will be no exception. Because if if he created all things, he himself is not created. Do you get the logic there? He created everything because he is eternally existent, because he is God. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He created all things. Revelation chapter 4 pictures this amazing, glorious gathering around the throne where angels and Created beings and living creatures are all singing the praises of the one who sits on the throne. And at one point they say this, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Jesus is the creator of all things. And when we're talking about all things here, we're talking about not just physical things. The text teaches us that we're talking also about spiritual things, which are no less real than physical things. It says, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. Jesus is the creator of all things, physical and spiritual. Jesus is the creator of all things out of nothing, He's not the assembler of all things from raw materials. Jesus created all things out of nothing. Spoke and things came into existence. Jesus is the creator of all things. Read on. It says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, that idea of also created for him adds an interesting layer to him being the creator. All things are not just created by him and through him, but also for him. They exist. All the things that exist, exist for him. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can become his counselor, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is what we're talking about, that Jesus is not only the creator of all things, he's the goal of all things created. They all exist for him. Now what is interesting is that when you Turn the page from Romans chapter 11 to Romans chapter 12. We see the right response to this. All things created by him, through him, and for him. Here's our response to that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is our response to Jesus being the goal of creation? It's to submit submit ourselves entirely to him and live for him. He's worthy of that kind of response. Jesus is the goal of creation. Aren't you so glad the weather broke this week that it's not blazing hot anymore? Oh, man, I am so good. It's good for my soul when fall comes around. And Friday, the first day of cool weather, I got out on some trails and spent some time in the woods. And man, it was just the greatest thing. And as I look around at creation, I want to encourage you to do this, to get out and look around at creation and say, all of this is for him. It's not for me. It's for him. And I want to look at all of it and turn praise back to him, give glory to him for all of these things. Because everything that is created is created for him. He created all things, and it is all for him. Jesus is the goal of creation. And look at verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus isn't just the creator of all things, nor is he just the goal of creation. He is the glue that holds it all together. He is the sustainer of all this creation. It is not as if he just made it all and then stood back and watched it all play out. He's not like a watchmaker who carefully builds a watch, winds it up, and then sets it aside and watches it go. No, it's not the kind of creator we're talking about here. We're talking about a creator who is intimately involved in every little detail of his creation. He is holding the universe together. And if for one moment he stopped holding it together, it would all fall apart. We need to acknowledge that. Were it not for him holding it all together, it would all fall apart. Now, I read this week some scholars, some scientists, talking about the mystery of why the nucleus of an atom holds together. They seem to all kind of be a little bit baffled of how the nucleus of every atom in the universe holds together together. I will let you in on a secret of why it holds together. Jesus holds it together. Right? When I was reading about this, the, the question quickly went over my head. Like when they got to talking about protons and neutrons and electrons and positive charge, and negative charge, and how, how is it really, according to the scientists, that nucleus shouldn't hold together, but it does. The question got over my head real quick, but I know the answer. Jesus holds it together. And if he stopped holding it together, it will all blow up. But he holds it together. He holds it together. Why does the earth orbit the sun at just the right distance so that we don't burn up or freeze up? Because of Jesus. Right? Jesus is doing that. He is in charge of all this. He holds it all together. That's what the text says. And one of the ways we see this, one of the ways we see him holding it all together... It's through the stories in the Gospels where Jesus exercises his control over creation, over nature. Like, you remember the story where Jesus has been out teaching all day, and uh, he tells the disciples, like, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. And they all pile in the boat, and they head to the other side, and a storm comes up. And the storm is bad, the winds are bad, and the waves are coming in the boat. And the boat is about to sink, and the disciples begin to panic. And they start to look around, and they find Jesus asleep in the bottom of the boat. You Remember this story? And so they go, and they wake Jesus up, and they say to him, Master, do you not even care that we are about to die? And Jesus stands up, and he says to the wind, he says to the waves, hush be still. And the winds and the waves obey him and the storm is gone. And he says to the disciples, where's your faith? And they say, who is this guy? Who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? Well, I will tell you who he is. He's the one who made the wind. He's the one who made the waves. He's the one who holds it all together. And if he says for it to be a storm, it's a storm. And when he says for it to be still, it's still. He's the one who is in control of all of this creation. He holds it all together and he will do with it what he wants. Jesus is the one who holds it all together. I want you to see this glorious sketch of the Lord Jesus Christ in these few verses. He is God in the flesh. He is supreme over all creation. He is the creator of all things. He is the goal of creation. He is the one who holds all of creation together. That's great. That's glorious and wonderful. And that's just scratching the surface. We're not even getting into redemption yet. We're just talking about creation. And there is enough for us to say, Whoa, I will praise this one. I want you to get a good look at. At Jesus, Over the next couple of weeks, I want you to get a good look at Jesus in his role in creation and his role in redemption. He is Lord of creation, and he is Lord of redemption. And I believe that a good look at Jesus will cause us to trust in Jesus and submit to him. I believe if we get a good look at Jesus, we will say, I will trust that one. I will submit my life to him. I believe there are some of you today who need to do that. Who have never seen a clear picture of Jesus. But today, God has given you eyes to see Jesus. Not just as Lord over creation, but as God in the flesh who died as your substitute. As God in the flesh who took the punishment for sin that you deserve. He died and he rose again. We talked about this a ton last week. Rescued you from the domain of darkness. Transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son redeemed and forgiven. If we get a good look at Jesus, it will cause us to trust in him and to submit to him. And I'm inviting you today to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and submit to him as Lord of your life. If we get a good look at Jesus, it will cause us to worship him. Don't you think? You know, every time in scripture somebody got a good look at Jesus, they fell on their face. They fell on their face in worship of him. They would say, woe is me, and he is awesome. And when we get a good look at Jesus, that is what will happen with us. And my prayer is that will happen today. In just a minute, when we get ready to sing, I hope that you will sing praises unto Jesus. If you get a good look at him, and you don't worship him, man, I am afraid for you. You either haven't really seen him, or your heart is so hard. Your heart is so hard that you cannot worship Him. We get a good look at Jesus. It will cause us to worship Him. So let's sing unto Him. Let's serve Him. A good look at Jesus will cause us to despise and reject heresies. A good look at Jesus will cause us to despise and reject heresies. If you have seen Him for who He is, the pitiful, powerless version of Of him that the Jehovah's Witnesses tell you about when they knock on your door, and other false teachers tell you about when they knock on your door. If you have seen Jesus as God in the flesh, the creator of all things, the redeemer of all things, if you have gotten a clear picture of Jesus, the pitiful false teaching that people spread will not appeal to you at all. You you will say, That is not who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things and the only redeemer of mankind. That's what Paul is doing to answer the false teaching in Colossae is he's not picking apart the false teaching. He's lifting high the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to see Jesus for who he is because when we see the truth of who Jesus is, that will protect us from the lies. That will protect us from the false teaching. And number four, when we get a good look at Jesus it will cause us to want to make sure other people get a good look at Jesus, won't it? Like if you've seen him in his glory, if you know him, you'll want others to know him too, right? You wouldn't want to keep that a secret. If you have a relationship with the creator of all things, don't you want other people to have a relationship with the creator of all things? A good look at Jesus will cause us to want to make sure other people have the opportunity to get a good look at Jesus. So I'm inviting you to share the truth about who Jesus is. In fact, I'm inviting you to do it by memorizing this passage and sharing it with other people. And listen, I'm giving you the perfect end to do this. Like you can totally say, preacher told me I had to memorize this. Preacher told me I had to share it with somebody. Will you listen to it? Who's going to say no to that? You can blame me for it and share the truth about who Jesus is with someone because we want other people to see him, don't we? Yeah, we do because we want other people to worship him. He deserves their worship, but so many don't know anything about him. So let's share so that other people can get a good look at Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, you are God in the flesh. You are supreme over all creation, firstborn over all creation. You are the creator of all things. You are the goal of all creation. You are the one who holds it all together. And so we trust in you. And we submit to you. And we worship you. And we want to make sure other people can see you and worship you as well. Help us. In these moments, as we sing together to respond rightly to who you are, help us as we leave this place to declare your glories to the people around us. We pray for lost men and women and boys and girls in the room that you would reach down and rescue them. That you would do the work of salvation in their lives that you have done for us. That you would give them eyes to see their sinfulness, their rebellion, that you would give them eyes to understand that they deserve nothing but wrath and judgment from you. And then in the brokenness, I pray that you'll give them eyes to see that you died for them, that you took their punishment so that they could be reconciled to the Father. I pray that you'll give faith to trust repentance to turn and new life for your own glory. This is a work that only you do. We invite you to do it.